Let's turn in our Bibles to the 24th Psalm. Psalm 24. The scripture Brother Melton read goes right along with what we're going to be talking about this morning from the 24th Psalm. He read from Psalm 9. But I want you to think about this. The great pastor and famous author, A.W. Tozer, who uh, wrote a lot of books that are so so thought-provoking and um, encouraging. When it comes to understanding God better, he wrote uh, books like The Pursuit of God and The Knowledge of the Holy are a couple of his most famous. But he wisely said this. He says, to know God is at the same time the easiest and the most difficult thing in the world. You think about that. What a simple statement, but how profoundly true is it that to know God is at once the easiest and the most difficult thing. To come to Christ, we talk about childlike faith, and we talk about how easy it is, and just receive Him into your heart, and believe in Him, believe that He rose from the dead. But then from that point on, we spend our lifetime trying to know and understand God more deeply and more profoundly. And the more we understand about Him, the more we realize how much more there is to understand. And we never exhaust the depth of God. We all have our own deep and our own personal struggles with understanding God. And those struggles take on the form of our personal struggles in life. They may center around family problems or problems with health and sickness or other crises in our lives. And God is always a part of those and we're always uh, prone to question, God, why is this happening? Why is this happening now? Why is this happening in this way? Those are big questions in life that we all wrestle with. Within the heart, though, of all true believers, there is an insatiable desire to know God more and to plunge the depths and to, to get to the bottom of those questions and to find those answers. As we discover more and more things about God, we realize how much more there is that we don't know. It's kind of like I had a professor in college, he said, as you began your, your journey of study here at this college, he said, if upon the day you graduate, if you realize how little you know, then we've done our job. You realize the world is a big place and there's a lot of information out there in this big old world. And the more books I read, the more things I learn, the more I realize just how much I don't know. A lot of stuff. And that's the way it is in our pursuit of understanding God. The more we know Him, the more we realize how much more there is about Him to know. It has been said we would never serve a God that we could fully understand. Well, that's good, because we're not ever going to understand God fully, at least in this life. We do serve, though, a mighty God who is mysterious to us on one hand, but he's totally familiar to us on the other hand. We have to ultimately conclude, though, that he is the king of all glory 
And just because we don't know everything there is to know about God, and there's a lot about God that remains mysterious to us, we have to conclude still, yet, He is worthy of our service. He's worthy of our honor. He's worthy of our worship. I invite you with your Bibles open to stand with me this morning as we read from God's Word, the Psalm 24, verses 1 through 10. David, the psalmist, writes, The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let us pray. Lord, we come to you this morning and we ask for your guidance to help us understand this 24th Psalm. Speak to our hearts individually this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you're seated. First thing we see and first thing we notice here is the all-creating God in verses 1 and 2. The 24th Psalm was written by David and it's really an anthem which heralded the Ark of the Covenant's long-awaited return. The Philistines, who were the enemies of God's people, the Israelites. You remember, probably the most famous Philistine of all was Goliath, the giant whom David had defeated with a slingshot and a smooth stone. But the Philistines were enemies of the nation of Israel. And in this instance, they had captured the Ark of the Covenant and they had, they had held it for seven months. So this psalm was written on the joyous occasion when the ark was returned to Israel. <coughs> Traditionally, this psalm was sung on Ascension Day and has inspired some of the great hymns that were written on that occasion. It's also known as a royal psalm. It describes the Lord's entrance into the holy city. Now, in many ways, it foreshadows Christ. Of course, a lot of the psalms do that, but this one in particular foreshadows Christ. As, as, as I said, many of the Psalms do, but you think about this King of glory. Who would that refer to most precisely but Christ Himself? Hopefully we as believers realize that the Lord possesses everything. The world does not realize that fact. When we think about this, uh, verse one here, the earth is the Lord's. This planet is the Lord's and everything in it. What does that exclude? Well, <coughs> everything is included. Everything is included in that. That means the Lord has sovereign control over the planet, the rotation of this planet, the tides, 
the rising of the sun, the setting of the sun, all people, all animals, all plants, the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, there's nothing that escapes God's sovereign control. The world, again, lives its life largely oblivious to the fact that God superintends everything that occurs in this world. When we say everything, we're talking about everything under God's control. C.S. Lewis, the great writer, Christian writer of the early to mid-20th century, called Earth the silent planet. You say, well, there's an awful lot of noise here for him to have called this the silent planet. But what he meant when he talked about that was that, think about all of the other celestial bodies. Think about the planets. Think about the stars. Think about the sun. All of those bring glory and honor to God just by their existence. There's no sin occurring anywhere else in the entire universe except for right here on the planet Earth. There are people dishonoring God here, whereas they're not anywhere else. Just by their very existence and existing in the manner in which God created them, all of these other things bring glory and honor to God. So he calls earth, he says, the place where there is no song, the quarantined and diseased planet, the silent planet. Interesting observation, interesting take on that, I would say. But certainly, there's an essence of truth in it. <coughs> Earth is the only place, though, plagued with sin. It is the only planet in rebellion. It's the only planet where God, God's creation does not glorify Him in the way that God intended for it to be so. Among all God's creation, Earth is the only spot God allowed Satan to invade and cause problems. And indeed, he has. The psalmist points back to God's creative acts. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, we read, Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and he divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. Who has such power to order things as God? Who can do that? We think about a president or a king or a prime minister and the power that they wield. But no one can do that. No one can separate the seas. No one can separate the waters from the dry land. No one can separate the atmosphere. Kings and presidents and prime ministers only have political power and political clout. They don't have power over nature like God does. He is the king, not of, the, not of this earth. He is the king of glory. He is king for the ages. He is king. He is sovereign. And his kingdom is not of this world, but his kingdom includes this world. We see next the all-holy God in verses 3 to 6. It is asked here, who may approach the Lord? The Lord who is so glorious, the Lord who is sovereign, seems unapproachable on one hand. Who can stand where he stands? Who can occupy the place that he occupies? 
Well, the clear answer is no one. It is true in the cosmic sense, but it's also true in the practical everyday sense for our lives. Who can occupy the place of God in your life? No one can except for God. People spend their days, they spend their weeks, they spend their years trying to put something or someone in the place that God alone should occupy. And it doesn't work out too well. God is holy. He is unapproachable because of human beings being tainted with sin. The only thing that bridges the gap between sinful man and a holy and a righteous and a sovereign God is Jesus Christ, his son. The God of the Old Testament seemed unapproachable much of the time as we read through the different books there because he largely was unapproachable. You couldn't just pray to God in the way that we take for granted praying to God. We were able to do that because of Jesus Christ. But those in the Old Testament only knew that God would one day send a Messiah. They didn't know him personally like we are we're privileged to do. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off or who were alienated or who were separated from God have been brought near by the blood of the cross. That is good news. We have been brought near by the blood of the cross in a way that nothing uh, nothing could bring us near except for the blood. The Bible says in the book of Leviticus that without the shedding of blood, there is no sacrifice, there is no remission, there is no cleansing for our sin. The book of Hebrews talks about how Christ died once for all to pay the penalty, to pay the price, and he has become... Our priest, he's not limited like the high priest of the Old Testament was by uh, their natural lifespan or limited by uh, death. And then there would have to be a new high priest and then another new one after that. No, he is a priest forever, it says, according to the order of Melchizedek, the eternal or permanent priesthood. On one hand, God is approachable, but on the other hand, he is very unapproachable. Two things are in contrast here. And the two things are this. Number one, the holiness of God. God is holy. God is set apart from sin. That's what holy means. God is set apart and he is set apart from sin. So that's in contrast with something else. And that is the blood of Christ. Christ's blood makes approaching a holy God possible like nothing else can. The psalmist asks here, or actually he states, he says, who can approach God? Well, who has clean hands and a pure heart? That's the person that can. And who has that? No one. No one. Or perhaps someone who has never lifted his soul to an idol of any sort. Well, that person can approach God. Who's done that? Who has fulfilled that? Well, no one. What about this? One who has never sworn deceitfully. In other words, someone who has never lied or borne any falsehoods before. That's the person who can approach God. 
Who qualifies there? Well, no one. No one. Who will receive blessings from God? The one who is not guilty of these things. But we're all guilty, though. So what do we do? Will anyone receive these blessings? The answer is yes. And the reason? Because of the blood of the cross. That's the only reason. We've been brought near, again, as Ephesians 2.13 says, by the blood of the cross. The holiness of God is not discussed much anymore. You hear an awful lot of things about God. You hear some things about Jesus. But you don't hear much about the holiness of God anymore. Mankind has largely made peace with sin in a way that mankind shouldn't have made peace with sin. There are a lot of things that are acceptable now that used to not be acceptable. And we don't have to live prudish or puritanical lives. It's not so much about that. It's not about keeping rules or whatever, but we've become lax in our morality in many, many ways. Therefore, the holiness of God is kind of being set aside. It's not that we deny it. It's not that we uh, argue against it. But we just don't emphasize it very much. Why? Because if we do, it smacks us right between the eyes. It convicts us of our sin and our waywardness. Most often, God is seen as our buddy. Or as our friend, is our pal. He is our friend. There's no doubt about that. But he's a lot more than that. And we're missing the tremendous biblical aspects of God if we see him only that way. R.C. Sproul has said, any attempt to understand God apart from his holiness is idolatry. What's he saying? When he says that, he says, if you don't understand God in terms of his holiness, you're talking about a whole different God. God can't be separated from his holiness. You can't compartmentalize and say, well, here's God over here. He's my buddy. He's my friend. And here's God over here who is holy. Well, you can't make that separation. He's a total package. And beginning to understand, or understanding God begins with understanding His holiness. God is set apart from sin. Why? You can't understand God in any other terms. It would be like trying to understand night apart from darkness. Or marriage without people. It's impossible to separate. Blessings from the Lord come in many forms, but none is so great as the salvation that God supplies. Salvation is the reward of those who trust in God's righteousness and not their own. The whole world is trusting in its own righteousness. If you began to talk to people today, interview them and say, what do you think is going to happen to you when you die? What are you trusting in? As you get older and as you approach the end of your earthly existence. 
It's hard to say what you might hear. But you would probably hear people comparing themselves to one another. Most people can't imagine that they're someday going to die and perhaps go to hell, as the Bible talks about. Why? Because they see evil as being terrorism. They see evil as an evil dictator or as a murderer or something like that. And they don't put themselves in that category. But yet the Bible lumps all sinners together. And it even says, and such were some of you. Paul, in his letters, gives a long laundry list of of terrible sins. And then he says, and such were some of you, but you have been cleansed. You have been changed. You're no longer... You, you no longer fall under the spell of those things. God is at work in your life. Salvation is the reward of those who trust God's righteousness. Not our own righteousness. Bible says in the book of Isaiah that all our righteousness is as filthy rags. All of our works, all of the things that we think we've done that are so great and ought to impress God, he says, are nothing but dirty rags or dirty cloths, filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, he goes on to say, and our iniquity like the winds have taken us away. We come and we go just like the leaves come in the spring and they go in the fall. God's people, the nation of Israel, is the generation of those who seek God's face. As we know, the church is grafted in with spiritual Israel. Romans 11 bears this out better than perhaps any other place in Scripture. So when we read and we study the history of the Old Testament, it's sort of our history now, too. As we've been grafted in, as as we are... Uh, As the church, we identify with Israel in a unique way, in a special way that only God fully understands. We understand in part. But we look back and we see how God was working through the Old Testament. And we see that in many ways, that is our heritage as well. Even today, Christians are to seek the face of God through Christ, just as Israel of old was to seek the face of God by obedience to his truth. Notice finally, in verses 7 through 10, the all-victorious God that is talked about here. The gates of the city seem to sag. The doors appear loose. But they must rouse themselves for the king of glory. One is coming who is worthy to stand in the holy place. As he nears... The gates raise themselves to honor at his entry. Probably today the closest thing we can, we can think of to, to process this and realize this is, is uh, we, many of us have the automatic garage doors and we push the button as we pull into our driveway and then we drive into our garage. Cities don't have gates anymore, but garages have doors. Think about this here. Back in, back in those days, I mean, cities could be conquered and conquered pretty easily if they didn't have walls around them. 
And you didn't just let people come and go. It was, it was, it was much more even than a gated community. Cities would fall to enemies' hands if they weren't protected. So much of the language of the Old Testament is the language of warfare. There was always someone conquering somebody else, and always someone trying to conquer someone else. And so God, many times and in many ways, is talked about in kind of military kind of terms. God is seen as a great warrior. God is seen as, in terms of the leader of an army, as a great conqueror, as a deliverer. That's what we see, and even into the New Testament, Christ is pictured that way. Christ, our warrior. Christ, the one who has conquered something. That kind of language is is, is spread throughout all of Scripture. The strength of God, though, is proclaimed in verses 8 through 10. And he is seen here as a king, the mighty warrior, the king of glory. He is the one who is is comes back from battle. And the gates open for him. And he is celebrated. He is paraded. He is cheered. Praise him, the psalmist says, because of the victory he has won. He is fresh from the battle. He is the one who may enter the city. He is the Lord himself. Whenever we are down, these verses can quickly cheer us up. When we think about things aren't going good in my life, things are difficult in my life. We say, who has won the ultimate victory on my behalf? Well, it's the Lord. He's the king of glory. And even on my worst day, I still possess salvation in Christ. And that's the biggest problem I ever had to overcome. In fact, one that I couldn't overcome on my own. The Lord had to step in and take care of that problem for me. And he's done it and nothing will change that. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he stayed strong. When Jesus was taunted to come down off the cross, he stayed strong. He didn't choose the easiest way. He chose a difficult way. But it was a meaningful way. It was an important way. And so he stuck with it. Not once in thought or word or deed as a babe, as a child, or as a teenager in the home, in the classroom, or in the synagogue, or at his father's workbench, did, did Satan ever win even the slightest victory over our Lord. He remained firm and fed steadfast and strong in the face of temptation. He is the king of glory. He sets the perfect example for us to follow. Our purpose then, indeed, is to follow his example in all things to the best of our ability to order our life after pursuing holiness as he is holy to pursue righteousness as he is righteous, to know that we serve a king, not just a person, not just a man, a mere mortal like a president or an earthly king, but an eternal king. I put my faith and I put my trust in him. Have you put your faith and your trust in him this morning? Followship begins with a personal relationship with him. So I ask you this morning, do you know Jesus Christ 
as your personal Lord and Savior. Let us pray. Lord, we come to you this morning and we give you thanks, first of all, for the salvation you provided through Christ. And Lord, we look into your word, whether it be Old or New Testament, and we see your power on display. We see that you are not only worthy, but Lord, you you are loving and caring for us uh, who are so undeserving of any bestowal of your blessings. We pray this morning that as we've gathered here together, that your Holy Spirit might have touched someone's heart. As they think about one year coming to a close and another beginning, another Christmas has passed by. Maybe in these recent days you've been working on someone's heart and showing them that they're in need of a touch from you at the point of salvation. Lord, we know that salvation means simply being saved from something and what we're saved from as Christians is the wrath that is coming upon what the Bible calls the sons of disobedience. Those who persist in their sins and their sinful paths. We pray this morning that through the convicting power of your Holy Spirit, maybe someone would have realized for the first time their need for you. Someone this morning might have come to understand that if they were to die today, they would spend all of eternity separated from you in a devil's hell. But Father, we know that you provided a way of escape for us simply by placing our trust and our faith in you and saying, Lord, you take control of my life. Save me from my sins, I pray. Maybe there are other needs here today, perhaps for church membership, perhaps for recommitment or rededication, perhaps just to kneel at the altar and say, Lord, as a new year begins, I pray that my life would reflect the holiness of God. It would reflect that I am a blood-bought child of God. You know the needs in this place today. You know the struggles going on in each and every heart. We pray this morning that you would meet our needs. That you would meet us right here today, right where we are. Work in us like only you can. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.